Welcome, friends and listeners, to Season 4, Episode 6, China and the Early 20th Century. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen Now, over the previous two episodes, we've spent quite a bit of time discussing the rise of the ultra-nationalist right in Japan. We especially noted the fact that Emperor Hirohito really waffled back and forth between trying to rule as a constitutional monarch in the tradition of the British, on the one hand at least, and then being an authoritarian on the other. We also looked at what historians refer to as the Mukden incident, where the Japanese used a false flag attack as an excuse to invade Manchuria, and set up a puppet government under the rule of Puyi, the former emperor of China. That was really the start of the Sino-Japanese War, at least in my mind. Now, I should note, I was torn about the title of that last episode. Originally, I titled it The Rise of Japanese Militarism Part 2, but went with Sino-Japanese War Part 1. I did that because the Mukden incident was, at the very least, a prelude to the full-on fighting that took place between the Japanese and Chinese. Most historians date the start of the Second Sino-Japanese War as 1937, but in my mind, they were at war as of September 1931. The years in between were a sort of phony peace period, a pause in the fighting. Thus, I am also pausing our discussion of the Second Sino-Japanese War to delve into a bit of Chinese history in this and the next two episodes. Having said that, in this episode, we are going to take a look at China in the early 20th century, so we can understand how it got into a position to be dominated by the Japanese in the 1930s. Okay, so let's jump into our time machine and head back to the early 20th century. Our song of the week this week is Rose, Rose, I Love You, a popular Shanghai jazz song of the 1930s. We'll see you in a few minutes.
Alright, so let's talk about the last imperial dynasty in Chinese history, the Qing dynasty. Now the Qing, unlike the previous dynasty, the Ming, were not Han Chinese. Instead, they were Manchus. This ethnic minority hailed from the region referred to as Manchuria, and are sometimes mistakenly referred to as nomadic peoples, but they were actually sedentary. This group was unified under the rule of a leader named, and I hope I don't butcher it, Nurhatsi. Now, by 1644, they were able to take Beijing, and they replaced the dying Ming dynasty. They claimed the Mandate of Heaven and declared the Qing dynasty. Now, did they change much? Mm, not really. They maintained much of the political and social systems of the Ming period, including the patriarchal system, the civil service exam, and the emphasis on agriculture. But they did change two things. First, they lifted the ban on foreign travel and trade, and second, they extended both commercialization and urbanization. Now, one of the things I should probably explain is the dynastic cycle and the mandate of heaven. In Chinese history, you had what is called the dynastic cycle. This was a process by which an imperial dynasty rose to power, ruled, and then eventually fell, only to be replaced by another one. The way it worked was that a new dynasty would usually emerge from a family of, say, a successful general, or perhaps the leader of a peasant rebellion. Now, the new dynasty would restore the peace and usually engaged in infrastructure-building projects. Then, eventually, this new dynasty becomes the old dynasty. This is characterized by overtaxing the citizens, poor protection for the people, a decline in infrastructure, and a rise in injustices. This leads to this old dynasty losing the mandate of heaven, which can be seen by revolts, invasions, and even natural disasters. All of this then leads to a new dynasty. So then, that you're probably wondering, what is the Mandate of Heaven? This idea was created, or so it's believed, by the Zhao Dynasty, which ruled from 1029 through 258 BC. This idea was used to justify the dynastic rule by claiming that, quote, Heaven had transferred power to the dynasty. Heaven could also withdraw the Mandate if the ruling dynasty shirked its duty. This was seen by the fact that you had natural disasters taking place, perhaps an invasion that the rulers couldn't handle, things like that. Alright, so now that we've got that out of the way, let's look at the downfall of the Qing dynasty. By the late 18th century, the civil service was riddled with corruption. Now, in order to get the Chinese civil service, or get into the Chinese civil service, and believe me, these were good jobs, one had to take the exam. However, by this point, cheating was quite common, and thus you had many uneducated bureaucrats, which only served to hurt the government. Add to this wealthy families who used the bureaucracy to establish their own authority, um, seeing as how posts were now either hereditary or available for purchase over the local region, and what you get is a country in decline. Now, at this point, spending on the military and public works projects dried up. This led to a decline in the competency of the military. It also led to floods, or they believed floods, wiping out some of the most productive farmland. That then caused food shortages, which led to peasant migrations, an increase in banditry, and homeless populations. The problems became so acute, there was a chance the normal cycle of dynastic decline and replacement was under threat. So, this brings us to the Opium War. And one could be, or one would be fairly accurate if you said China was now threatened by a new type of barbarian, the Europeans. Remember, China saw itself as the Middle Kingdom, and by this, it was meant that China was the center of the world. And quite honestly, a quick survey of Chinese history will show uh, they weren't really all that wrong. Think of all the things the Chinese created. The four great ones, of course, are paper, the compass, 
gunpowder, and printing. They are also the first to have used paper money. They also created fired bricks, the cultivation of rice and soybeans, and even created lacquer. I mean, I could go on, but I think you get the point. So back to the Opium War. The British had a plan to export opium from India to China. I can hear you thinking, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, I know. But remember, opium was a medicinal ingredient and had been used in China for centuries, at least as far back as the Tang Dynasty. It was rarely used as a recreational drug and, because of the difficulty in transporting goods, was only shipped as a dried powder, which was mixed with tea. The use of opium was banned by the Qing Dynasty in a move that was similar to what the Ming had done with tobacco. Both were decadent, at least in the minds of the Chinese government, and thus the Qing attempted to forbid them from being imported into China. Now, as for the British, they inherited the opium industry from the Mughal Empire, which for years had been able to profit by selling unrefined opium. However, the British, after taking over India, saw the drug as having great export potential. The British East India Company controlled the industry and was able to profit greatly from it. When the Qing Dynasty outlawed opium, foreign merchants got around the edict by simply creating floating warehouses out of older seagoing vessels. The reason? The Chinese Navy had no ships that could operate in open water. American merchants even joined in the opium trade and made a lot of money from it. Even some famous people had made money from the opium trade. One example was Franklin Roosevelt's maternal grandfather, Warren Delano Jr. There were other famous Americans who made their fortunes as opium merchants, including John Jacob Astor. So we weren't, you know, the Americans, they didn't have their hands clean in this either. Now, why would the British pursue such a policy? Well, first and foremost, they wanted to trade with China. Even 200 years ago, China was the largest market in the world. Second, the Europeans had nothing the Chinese really wanted. However, opium was definitely one of the few, if not the only, items that the Europeans had which the Chinese wanted. Finally, the British were all about free trade. We might wonder just how free the trade was, but that's a topic for a different episode. Now, in the 1830s, the emperor appointed Lin Zhezhu to try and stamp out the opium trade, as it was quite obvious the laws passed in the 18th century had not worked. Lin blockaded Canton and confiscated European opium supplies. As you can imagine, that didn't sit well with the Europeans. British merchants demanded their government intervene to protect their profits. So in 1839, the Opium War broke out. Now, at first, the British Royal Navy routed the Chinese junks in the first stages of the war. They then sent a military force ashore, at which point the Qing Emperor sued for peace. The outcome of the treaty that ended the war, the Treaty of Nanking, was that the Chinese ceded control of Hong Kong and granted extraterritorial privileges to British subjects. This was the first unequal treaty signed by the Qing Dynasty, which often saw the Chinese give up land, pay reparations, open ports, and grant extraterritorial privileges to imperial powers, such as Britain, France, Germany, Russia, and even Japan. Defeat at the hands of the British helped set off a series of rebellions against the Qing. The first, the Taiping Rebellion, lasted from December 1850 through August 1864. This was a massive civil war between the Qing Dynasty and the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, one of the bloodiest in human history, with estimates of the death toll ranging anywhere from 20 to 30 million, although one recent study posits the deaths number uh, almost 70 million. Now the leader, and I'm going to mess this one up again, Hong Shiquan demanded land redistribution and the liberation of women. He also wanted to end the influence of the Confucian scholar gentry. 
Basically, these were the elite whose status was based on the fact that they passed the imperial service exam. Now, the rebellion, at the end of the day, it was defeated. But the legacy of the rebellion was that it led to the lasting change within the Qing dynasty. Power was decentralized, and the traditional Manchu forces, which the dynasty had depended on, failed and were replaced by, personally, by a personally organized army. One other outcome of all of this was something called the self-strengthening movement. This was when provincial leaders, as part of this decentralizing of power, began to carry out much-needed reforms on their own. They built railways and factories, and they modernized the military. Resources, as a result, moved from the central court to the provinces. The Manchus, for their part, continued to resist these reforms as much as they could. The reality, though, is that the defeats to the Europeans and Japanese continued. For example, the French in Indochina in 1885, and the British in the Aero War in the 1860s. Then there was the First Sino-Japanese War in 1895. All of this, starting with the First Opium War, was what Chinese nationalists in the 20th century referred to as part of the century of humiliation, which they argue only came to an end with the rise to power of the Communist Party under Mao and the defeat of the Kuomintang led by Chiang Kai-shek. And when we study it, it's quite astonishing. Not only did the West force China to allow it to sell opium, which then led to millions of Chinese people being addicted to that drug, but China was forced to surrender all legal jurisdiction over Westerners in China. To add insult to injury, the West then forced the Chinese to open treaty ports to Western traders and missionaries who had special rights and privileges that even the wealthiest Chinese did not enjoy. So that raises the question, whose country was it anyway? Now let's talk about the Boxer Rebellion. This was a violent anti-imperialist movement in China that lasted almost two years. Kicked off by the Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists, they attacked Western-built technology, missionaries, and diplomats in Beijing. As you can imagine, that would have upset the imperial powers, and well, of course, they responded. European, Japanese, and even American forces were sent to intervene. The country that sent the largest contingent was Japan. They sent 18 warships and 20,000 soldiers. In the end, the rebellion failed, and China was again forced to adopt or accept Western control and intervention in their society and politics. Now, if I may digress momentarily, I think this is important for Americans to understand. The media in our country often decries the Chinese government and their actions. Perhaps rightly so. However, I guarantee you, if you keep what I just said in mind, you will understand why the CCP will never simply go along with what the Americans and their European allies demand. As a matter of fact, I'd argue the worst thing you can do is to demand the Chinese do X or Y. I assure you, Xi Jinping is more than conversant with this history and will never do anything that could make his people think he's bowing to Western pressure. Now this leads us to the fall of the Qing Dynasty. Resistance, as you can probably imagine, was on the rise. There were secret societies which opposed the Manchu emperors who hoped to use Western ideas to create a reformed government. They also wanted to restore Chinese territorial integrity and expel foreigners from China. I can't imagine why they'd want that. I mean, what were they thinking? And yes, I'm being sarcastic here. Uh, the pivotal figure in the movement was a man named Sun Yat-sen, born November 12, 1866 in the coastal province of Guangdong. Sun was a Western-educated doctor, a philosopher, and considered by historians to be one of the greatest Chinese leaders of the modern era. He served as the first president of the Republic of China and was the first leader of the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party. In Taiwan, he's referred to as the father of the nation 
and is even revered in mainland China by the CCP as the forerunner of the revolution, thanks to his role in the overthrow of the Qing dynasty. I think, and I might be wrong, but I think he's the only 20th century leader who is admired in both the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China, aka Taiwan. Now Sun's legacy was his political philosophy known as the Three Principles of the People. These are nationalism, or independence from domination by foreigners, democracy, or the rights of the people, depending on the translation, and finally, welfare, or concern for the people's livelihood. He also left a power struggle after he died between his protege, Chiang Kai-shek, and one of his old revolutionary comrades, Wang Jingwei. Both men wanted to claim the legacy of Sun for themselves, and we're going to see more of that in the next two episodes. Interestingly, Chang married Sung Meiling, the sister of Sun's widow, um, Sung Qingling. So he could claim he was Sun's brother-in-law, but what's even stranger, or perhaps more interesting, is the fact that Sun's widow sided with the communists during the Chinese Civil War, and even served as the vice chairwoman of the People's Republic of China. I want to take a moment to discuss these sisters, often simply referred to as the Sung sisters. There were three, two of whom I've already mentioned. First was Sung Ailing, then Sung Qingling, and finally Sung Meiling. All three were Shanghaiese, Shanghainese, and all three played a major role in the 20th century um, in Chinese history, and all three lived very long lives. The eldest sister, Sung Ailing, was born in June 1888. She was a businesswoman who married the richest man in China in the early 20th century, H. H. Kung. She was educated in the United States at Wesleyan College in Macon, Georgia, and spent about five years there. Eventually, Ai Ling returned to China and worked as secretary for her future brother-in-law, Sun Yat-sen. In 1914, she married her husband, H. H. Kung, a 75th descendant of Confucius. Now, there is an interesting story here, but for the sake of time, suffice it to say, he would serve in the Kuomintang until 1944. Accused of graft, corruption, and war profiteering, Ai Ling and her husband transferred their wealth and businesses abroad and left China, settling in the United States. She died in October 1973 at the age of 85. Now, the middle sister, sometimes called the Red Sister, was the aforementioned Qingling. She was a member of the KMT or the Kuomintang up until 1927, when, just two years after her husband's death, she broke with the movement when they expelled the communists from the Kuomintang. She accused the nationalists of betraying her husband's legacy, and to some extent, I think she's right. Sun, at a minimum, was a proto-communist, but he himself said, quote, our principle of livelihood is a form of communism, end quote. And the CCP, as I said earlier, sees him as a forerunner to their movement. Anyway, Qingling remained in China and was never purged from the party, which is more than most can say. Although she was targeted by the Red Guards in the Cultural Revolution, she was put on a list of those to be protected by Zhou Enlai. It was approved by Mao, by the way. She died in May 1981 at the age of 88, from leukemia. Now, the youngest sister, shortly afterwards, ended up marrying Chang. So, there's some interesting family politics there. Mei Ling, the youngest, lived to the ripe old age of 106, having passed away in 2003, witness to the history of the late 19th, 20th, and early 21st century. Now, there's a lot that I could say about her, and I have a feeling I will when I do um, those episodes on her husband, Chang, Kai-shek, and Mao, but suffice it to say for now that she was one of the most important women in world history. In the end, the last emperor of China, Puyi, a boy of just 12, abdicated the throne. In the end, Sun might have been a forerunner of the communist revolution, but China was not yet able to move forward. 
this is a complicated time in Chinese history, as you're going to see over the next few episodes. Um, and I don't want to dive into that rabbit hole in this episode. I'm, I do, but I don't. Let's just say that China dissolved into several warring states, and for the next few decades it would be, to put it lightly, a mess. And that's the official academic term. <laughs> okay, so this is where we end the story for today, in our exploration of Chinese history in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, if you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to the episodes a week ahead of time, and they are commercial-free. You also get access to the bonus show, 1983, the year the world almost ended. Now, if Patreon isn't your thing, um, you can support the show by visiting our sponsors, such as Fable Beard Company, the official beard oil of the American History Podcast. Remember to use coupon code SEAN for 15% off each and every order. We also have a buy me, co uh, buy me a coffee setup. Just message me for the information. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Season 4 of the American History Podcast. I'll see you all next time. Shut it off, Robert. Oh, please, wait like it. Wait a minute.